Welcome to the Meek Medic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Suresh Kawadka. I'm a GP and lifestyle physician, and I'm a practicing carnivore. I've had great success myself and with patients by following a carnivore diet, and I want to spread the word about how to achieve optimal health through diet, nutrition, and lifestyle changes. In today's episode, we are discussing prolonged fasting, that is, fasting for more than 24 hours. Now, right out of the gates, I'm going to tell you, this can be dangerous and you should speak to your doctor or a doctor experienced in prolonged therapeutic fasting before you start. There's also some good books and other literature out there by medical doctors who do this kind of work, like Dr. Jason Fung, that you could read. That being said, why would you want to do prolonged fasting if it's dangerous? Well, it's not inherently dangerous. As I said in my previous episode on intermittent fasting, the longest fast ever recorded was actually 382 days by a Scottish man called Angus Barbieri. He lost 276 pounds in that time, and he was under medical supervision and was consuming vitamins and other supplements to help him. Now, there's no doubt this is an extreme fast, and I believe he was fairly closely monitored by doctors during this time, although interestingly he wasn't in the hospital, he was actually living at home and just went in every few days. Now, I couldn't find much documentation on exactly what happened and whether he suffered any ill effects or side effects, but my understanding is that if he did, it was pretty small and it was it was temporary. So, we're not talking about doing 382-day fasts, no, more like maybe one to three days. Now, some people go further and do maybe five, seven, or even 14-day fasts. I know some people that have gone on longer, you know, to do this. Some have gone, I saw someone the other day saying 42-day fasts, you know, regularly. That's, that's extreme. We're not talking about that. Now, myself personally, I've done plenty of one to three-day fasts. I've done a few seven-day fasts. I've also done one 14-day fast. Now, I've had a few patients do seven-day fasts as well, and I've overseen them through this and monitored their electrolytes and blood tests, you know, at key intervals. I also monitored myself through blood tests during my 14-day fast. I guess the question is why are blood tests even required? Well, I mentioned that prolonged therapeutic fasting can be dangerous and that's mainly due to electrolyte disturbances. If you don't know what electrolytes are, they're substances, chemicals if you will, within the body that help to regulate and control bodily functions, cellular processes, and generally many aspects of our health. And if they're out of balance, you can quite quickly have a problem. Symptoms of electrolyte disturbance can be minor or pretty profound and can even result in coma or death. So these things are not to be messed with or ignored. Thankfully though, the body is generally extremely good at tightly regulating these electrolytes, even under stressful conditions like fasting. But things can go wrong. The risks increase almost exponentially with the longer you fast for. There's many electrolytes and chemicals within our body that are important for all sorts of functions, but the five most important perhaps are potassium, glucose, sodium, magnesium, and phosphate. These are all usually 
tightly controlled within the body, because even minor disturbances can have pretty serious consequences. However, that's under normal conditions. And prolonged fasts, the body can start to struggle with these key substances. The most obvious one that will be affected is glucose. Now, generally, your blood glucose level will fall when fasting, but it's usually maintained by the body somewhat by processes such as glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis. Glycogenolysis refers to breaking down of muscle glycogen and liver glycogen into glucose and glucose 1-phosphate. And the latter, gluconeogenesis, refers to the creation of glucose from non-glucose sources, for example protein, amino acids, or even lactate. Now these processes are regulated quite carefully by your hormones, mainly cortisol, glucagon, and insulin. But if your hormones are disordered, then your homeostasis, as we call it, your regulation, can be disordered as well as a result. Now, generally, glucose should be between around 4 to 6 millimoles per litre, or around 70 to 100 mils per deciliter in American units. Some variations will exist, but this is the case for most people. Locally, here in Australia, normal reference ranges given are around 3.5 to 6 millimoles per litre for most people. Now, for the most part, other than extreme readings, a high glucose reading is actually not that dangerous in the short term, but can be very, very damaging in the long term. Whereas a low glucose is the opposite. It's more likely to be dangerous in the short term and less of a concern in the long term. The level at which danger can occur does vary between individuals. And to my knowledge, that mechanism isn't terribly well understood but likely it's due to your hormonal balance and how well your body can control and handle a low blood sugar. I've seen patients with type 2 diabetes have severe hypo events around 3.5 millimoles per litre, yet I've seen medically, metabolically well patients with fasting glucoses less than 3, around 2.8 millimoles, walking around like there's nothing happening and not even feeling faint at all. Likely, it's because the other processes such as the ketone body and fatty acid metabolism is functioning much more optimally in these patients. So the brain isn't as concerned with low glucose, as it's still getting plenty of energy from those ketone bodies. Now, typically, I'm recommending patients try and stay above 3.5 millimoles per litre, and you definitely must eat if you're feeling unwell. How you then eat depends on how long you've been fasting for. Uh, we'll come back to this later but there's a very dangerous condition called refeeding syndrome that you do need to be aware of. Now, just coming back to glucose briefly, symptoms of low sugar, low blood glucose, otherwise known as hypoglycemia, include sweating, lethargy, tiredness, fatigue, drowsiness, dizziness, lightheadedness, feeling shaky or trembling, shaky or tingling lips, tingling extremities, heart palpitations, mood disturbance, and confusion. Potassium is another key electrolyte at risk in prolonged fasting. It's usually very tightly controlled within the body, and both high and low potassium is very dangerous. Low potassium is mainly the concern with prolonged fasting, and symptoms include weakness, cramps, feeling tired, confusion, constipation, diarrhea, drowsiness, tingling or numbness, 
chest pains, irregular heartbeats, or more forceful heartbeats. As with all electrolyte disturbances, very low potassium is very, very serious and extremely dangerous and can very quickly become a medical emergency. Generally, most doctors recommending or overseeing prolonged fasting will be recommending some sort of way of maintaining your potassium levels, such as consuming electrolyte tablets or drinks, bone broths, coconut water, or even maybe pickle juice. Now, theoretically, most of these will actually break a fast, but realistically, they're mostly unlikely to impact a great deal, yet they could stop the electrolyte disturbances you get and be very, very useful. Now, as with glucose, again, if you feel any of these symptoms, you should break the fast, but take care how you do it, because again, refeeding syndrome is a big concern. Now, again, as with the other electrolytes, magnesium will deplete over time, and the longer you fast for, the more it will go down. Magnesium is very important, but is generally less, than a less, of, less of a concern than other electrolytes. The body has very good mechanisms for controlling magnesium. And whilst it's estimated that around 75% of the world's population is actually magnesium deficient, the deficiency is minor in most individuals. We don't know exactly why the majority of the world is magnesium deficient, but it's postulated that it's mainly due to the low nutritional content of food, most of the food that we consume. Fluoride in drinking water may be a contributing factor, but that's not been proven. Symptoms of low magnesium include muscle cramps, fatigue, tiredness, dizziness, nausea and vomiting, shaking, muscle spasms or fasciculations, that is minor movements of the muscles at rest, loss of appetite and sleepiness. Magnesium is harder to keep up during a prolonged fast than the others. The body is quite good at regulating its magnesium levels and a prolonged fast is unlikely to cause significant magnesium deficiency if your levels were good to start with, but it is possible. In particular, if you're exercising, particularly weight training, it's going to put a lot more pressure on your magnesium levels and could reduce them significantly. It's therefore sensible to consider taking a magnesium supplement during a prolonged fast of more than a few days. Now, some take powders, some take tablets. Bearing in mind, both of these will probably break the fast. So not ideal. You probably won't get any magnesium in bone broths. So I typically recommend topical magnesium, either in Epsom salts or flakes in the bath, creams, or maybe spray oils. Spray oils don't give a lot of magnesium though. Phosphate is probably simultaneously the least and the most concerning electrolyte. I know, that sounds odd. Let me explain. Phosphate levels for most people are generally quite good because they're present in a lot of food, both meat, vegetables, bread, etc. Phosphate levels in most people are generally good, although some people can have low levels to start with. So it's sensible to get your levels checked prior to doing a prolonged fast to, sure, to make sure that you are adequately replete, that means you've got enough, before starting the fast. Phosphate levels will drop with fasting, and the longer you fast for, the more it will drop. Symptoms of low phosphate include muscle pain, bone pain, muscular weakness, altered conscious state, confusion, drowsiness, 
dizziness, numbness, reduced reflexes, and in extreme cases, seizures, coma, and death. Thankfully, this is rare. And phosphate is actually quite easy to replenish during a fast by using bone broth. Hence why it's actually not that much of a concern. Most commercially available bone broths will have significant levels of phosphate in. So consuming these during prolonged fasts is likely to keep your phosphate levels very high. In fact, when I lasted my 14-day fast, my phosphate levels actually went up over the course of the fast because I was drinking the bone broths. Now, I'm sure homemade bone broths are fine as well. The main concern for phosphate levels is something called refeeding syndrome, and this can affect all electrolytes, as I said earlier. Now, refeeding syndrome is a condition in which the body shifts fluid and electrolytes into cells from the bloodstream. Most electrolyte disturbances occur when levels in the blood drop, not levels in the body as a whole. And in refeeding syndrome, the levels will drop far more significantly. And low phosphate is usually the biggest problem and is usually the hallmark of refeeding syndrome. Thankfully, it's very rare in the general population and is really only seen in people who are very, very malnourished. But it does increase with prolonged fasts, and the longer you fast for, the greater the risk. Generally, fasts of up to three days are very low risk for refeeding syndrome. Fasting three to five days, slightly higher risk. Five to seven, the risk is starting to go up, and seven days or more, the risk can be significantly increased. Now, this is mainly due to the action of insulin. The longer you fast for, the lower your electrolytes will go, but also the lower your insulin will go, and the lower your insulin resistance will go. Now, this is generally the idea of prolonged fasting, but in refeeding syndrome, this is very, very dangerous. This is because when your insulin resistance goes down, insulin works more effectively, which is kind of the point. When your insulin resistance drops, your insulin sensitivity also increases. That is, again, your insulin will work more effectively, which again is kind of the point. But we've got now almost really a, a double effect. And a big spike of insulin, say from a high carbohydrate meal, can have an enormous insulin effect on the body with this double whammy effect. This can force the shift of key electrolytes like phosphate, potassium, magnesium, and of course, glucose out of the blood and into tissues in the body, thereby significantly reducing the concentration in the blood. If your levels are already low because you've been fasting for, a, you know, say seven days or 14 days, and then they're suddenly dramatically lowered even more, it can put you at very real risk of refeeding syndrome, which is very, very dangerous. It's a medical emergency and it can result in severe disability, harm and death. Sudden changes in glucose status can also shift sodium and other key electrolytes. So this is the reason why we really want to optimize our electrolytes before the fast and why you should be mindful of what you eat when you break the fast. Now, I think I mentioned in the previous episode on intermittent fasting that breakfast isn't the most important meal of the day, but breakfast is the most important meal of the day.
Now this is because traditionally we weren't eating 3-4 meals a day, maybe once every few days. This is what I'm talking about with refeeding syndrome. You really should eat a small, very low carbohydrate meal, ideally even a zero carb meal with just some small amount of protein when you're breaking a long fast. You really don't want a big spike of insulin and eating a high carb meal will spike insulin enormously. Eating a small protein meal will cause a very small insulin spike. Once your insulin has been triggered, the sensitivity reduces significantly. And you're then at much lower risk of refeeding syndrome and can eat a slightly larger meal a few hours later and a few hours later and so on and so forth. It's still recommended to eat smaller low-carb meals until your electrolytes are back within normal ranges though. Now I've got a link in the description to a paper on refeeding syndrome which explains it quite well so you can actually go and read up more on it if you want. It's hard to give a universal guide to prolonged fasting as it very much depends on how long you want to fast for, what your medical conditions are, what medications you take, your previous experiences with fasting, and your electrolyte levels before starting the fast. As a general guide, I would recommend you discuss it first with your doctor as you may require some medical supervision, particularly depending on the medications. I mentioned before in the last episode about SGLT2 inhibitors with intermittent fasting. You really need to be very, very careful if you have type 2 diabetes doing a prolonged fasting on these kinds of medications. There is a significant and very serious risk of a condition called euglycemic ketoacidosis or EKA. It's also recommended really that you should get your electrolyte levels checked before starting to make sure that they're optimized. Once optimized, generally I would repeat the blood test every two to three days to make sure they aren't dropping too quickly at the end, and then two to three days after the end of the fast. Depending on the levels then, there may need to be subsequent testing. If the levels drop too much, I will advise my patients to stop the fast sooner and safely refeed and give them guidance on what to do, and then do follow-up testing. Now, this might sound unnecessary, but remember those electrolyte disturbances are potentially deadly. and I really can't overstate this. Now, some people out there are going to say, oh, well, yeah, I do it all the time and it's fine. Great, bully for you. But you're not every single person. And there's others listening or watching this podcast who might actually have serious issues with this. So it's better to be safe than sorry. Others out there might think, oh, you just want the money for consults for these things. Well, actually, no, I don't because when I see patients and set them up, I just give them four or five blood tests to go and get them every few days. I don't charge them for that. So anyway, let's assume now that you've safely done a prolonged fast and you've recovered. Great, fantastic. Now what? Well, you know, one would assume if you go back to the way you were eating before, the problems are going to come back. You had those issues before, I'm assuming because otherwise why would you want to do a prolonged fast because of the way you were eating. So if you go back to doing that those issues are going to come pretty much straight back. Prolonged fasting isn't a magical solution. It's not going to give you a Teflon shield to protect you from further metabolic damage. If you go back to old habits you'll get old issues coming straight back. You need to make long-term changes for your metabolic health. There's no quick fixes. A question I often get asked is how often 
can I do prolonged fasting? Now, whilst intermittent fasting is generally safe to do forever, I wouldn't recommend regular prolonged fasting as, as such. Most doctors doing this kind of work wouldn't recommend more frequently than maybe every few months to allow the body to recover, electrolytes and hormones to balance and normalize. More frequent than this could potentially put you at greater risk. It's also just unlikely to be necessary, unlikely to be beneficial, and it is definitely going to give you diminishing returns on your fasting. Actually, that's a good point. Diminishing returns. So what that means is the longer, in this context for fasting, the longer you do it for, the less the benefit is. There's definitely diminishing returns when it comes to prolonged therapeutic fasting. And this is probably due to the hormonal changes. Now, if all you're interested in is the number on the scales, then yes, you're going to see linear benefits with the duration of the fast because, well, you're not eating. But if you want to be metabolically healthy, then you're likely to see less benefits the longer you fast, beyond a certain point. Now, experts in this field disagree at what point the maximum benefit really is, but it's likely to be somewhere at or below seven days. Now, I've personally done 14-day fast before, and honestly, I saw absolutely no benefits beyond seven days. Now, this is probably because by around three days, your insulin level is likely to be pretty much next to nothing. In fact, my insulin after day three dropped to one, which, which is barely detectable. I mean, it's almost like I'm not even alive. I was, clearly. The longer your insulin is low for, the more the insulin resistance will drop, but you don't need it to be one forever. As long as you don't return to a high-carb diet, the insulin resistance levels will continue to fall after the fast. Growth hormone changes can continue increasing. And we do know at what point they're going to be at their maximum. Sorry, we don't know at what point they're going to be at their maximum. But there is data to suggest that maybe 40 days. However, the number of 40 days is probably not much higher than seven days if you look at the data. And a 40-day fast, well, that's, that's significantly risky, very dangerous for refeeding syndrome. At day three, growth hormone's already 300% higher than baseline, typically. And 40 days, it's around 1,250%. However, this isn't going to maintain forever. Growth hormone will drop pretty much immediately when you start eating, particularly if it's carbohydrates. Protein and fat don't affect growth hormone that much. And in fact, protein can increase growth hormone indeed, but it's not going to keep the levels at 1250%. It will drop when you eat. So for those reasons, I typically don't recommend more than seven day fasts. And I advise my patients that beyond three days, really, the benefits are actually quite low and the risks do go up. I believe, and most people in the field believe when you're doing a seven-day fast or longer, that you also require medical supervision with blood tests and so forth. But realistically, doing a three-day fast is relatively low risk, other than if you have really serious health conditions or certain medications. So for people doing three-day fast, generally for myself, if I know them, the patient well, I know their medical history, etc., I often don't even need to monitor them at all. 
They just they just go and do it. So I believe the benefits of a long fast really are outweighed by the by the downsides, and I would probably stick to three days. So we've discussed the benefits of a prolonged fast and the dangers, and a rough outline on how to do it. But what's a prolonged fast actually like? What's the experience like? Are you just going to be insanely hungry the whole time? Well, actually, no, you won't. Not likely anyway, depending on your metabolic health to start with, of course. But most people are not actually particularly hungry beyond around 24 hours. The hardest part I find personally is around maybe 18 hours. Then it gets easier. This is actually science and it's because of our hormonal changes. As you fast, your body will produce ghrelin, the hunger hormone. This is to stimulate you to eat. However, this isn't a constant production. It comes in pulses and generally by around 36 hours is actually pretty much next to nothing. If you can kind of push through, your hunger will actually go down as ghrelin levels fall. And around 36 hours, very little to no ghrelin is actually produced. That's one and a half days. The other effect is as the insulin levels are falling, a hormone called leptin can start to become unblocked. Now, I mentioned this before in my previous episode on intermittent fasting, but leptin is, leptin rather, sorry, is effectively your, your fuel gauge you know, on your car, your fat stores, or your gas tank. So leptin's basically saying, it's okay, calm down. I've got enough storage. You don't need to eat right now. Don't panic. You're not dying. Insulin blocks the activity of leptin. So as insulin levels fall, leptin actively, activity rather, effectively increases. So on one hand, we have less hunger signals being produced. And on the other hand, we have increasing signals saying we already have enough energy storage on board so we need to eat less. And this is why you actually don't feel that hungry on prolonged fasts, assuming you are actually fasting and not just not eating. Fasting will generally lower cortisol as well, which can also further reduce your drive to eat. An increased growth hormone further reduces ghrelin. Generally, beyond three days, you'll actually feel maybe, you know, mostly little to no hunger. Another question I often get asked is, well, won't I feel dizzy or lightheaded? Again, surprisingly, no, it's unlikely to happen because whilst your blood sugar may be a bit on the low side, it's actually likely to be much, much more stable. Your leptin levels will be higher and your insulin a lot lower, allowing your body access to your fat stores for fat metabolism to provide ketone bodies for fuel. This is a slightly simplistic view of what happens, but somewhat accurate. Your insulin levels will fall, allowing more ketosis, as we said. Now, you may at times feel slightly lightheaded, yes, but it's temporary and short-term. However, if you do feel unwell, you should break the fast, as we've discussed previously. Now, one of the more common questions I think I get asked is, well, when my muscles just waste away? Well, no, this is actually a common myth that your muscles will just waste away if you don't eat. It's actually based on very little to no evidence. And there's actually plenty of evidence to the contrary. We already discussed the rise in growth hormone 
around 300% at three days, and at seven days will be much higher. Now, if you've ever done a prolonged fast, you, you'll actually be able to feel this effect. Just ask anyone who's done one before. They'll tell you, almost certainly, they actually got stronger during the fast. If your muscles were simply wasting away, uh, this wouldn't be the case. When I lasted my, uh, my last seven-day fast, my strength dramatically increased. I could lift my wife up like she was just a piece of paper. Now, she's not particularly heavy, but I'm not super strong. I could also carry one of my kids on each arm at the same time, like they were just nothing. It didn't phase me at all. All my weightlifting went up, all my weights went up, and I certainly did not feel or look like my muscles were wasting away. I had a Dexter body scan afterwards, which confirmed my muscles hadn't gone down at all. In fact, they'd gone up. Actually, just a quick note on DEXA body scans. You should compare like for like. So kind of true fasting versus true fasting or eating versus eating. Or the results will be skewed. Muscle glycogen will deplete during a fast and will make your muscles look less dense and actually fool the scanner. It'll say they're fat when they actually aren't. Anyway, back to fasting. So what other changes might you see with fasting? Beyond the obvious bit of hunger and so on, and of course we've discussed muscles already, what about brain function? Again, ask anyone that's ever done a fast. Chances are they felt amazing. True mental clarity. Most people report their reflexes, their cognition, their brain function is just kind of just on fire in, in a good way. They're just, they're just on point, quick to respond, cognitively agile, able to recall memories just in intricate detail that they just never really could before. I remember when I did my first fast, my first seven-day fast, I was absolutely blown away by this. My memory was kind of like, yeah, not, not even like a 4K, like an 8K, 16K screen in front of my face, just, you know, full clarity. I could recall words from my medical textbooks that I hadn't read in, in over a decade. Like I could just see the pages in front of me. It was really bizarre. All of my senses became heightened. My, my vision improved. I got less sensitive to sunlight. My hearing was just pin drop sharp. My cognition and responses were just, were just reflex without any effort. My wife was actually re really stunned when I actually, well, answered a question that she asked me. Um, and, and not just the fact that I actually heard her and answered, but I actually answered the question correctly. Now, my memory isn't fantastic for small details, especially dates. I kind of get a lot of things wrong and she always corrects me. So actually, it was a bit unusual that I would just fire off this answer without even thinking, getting it correct. Especially the fact that I, she was about 10 meters away and I was boiling the kettle and I could barely hear her. Yet I just answered without even a thought. Let's think about this from a nature or an evolutionary perspective. And it might help to explain maybe why this is the case. So predators in the wild, and of course humans, we are predators by design. We should be no exception. Now predators don't eat 24-7 in nature. They don't go to McDonald's, you know, the lion doesn't go to KFC when they're hungry. No, they go hunt. They run. They expend energy. 
they have to generally catch their prey. Scavengers are different, of course. Most big predators will eat every few days, maybe. Sometimes I can even go weeks between meals if they can't catch anything. Now, if they got weaker and frailer the longer they didn't eat, well, I mean, basically, by the time they, they try and catch something, they're not going to be able to. They don't get weak and frail. Their muscles don't fall to pieces. Their brain doesn't turn to mush. If they did, they'd never catch anything and they'd die. In fact, often it's actually the opposite. If you watch any, any nature program, you know, their energy levels actually seem to go up. Their brain and reflexes get more acute and they become better hunters. After all, at some point, I mean, if you can't catch something, you're going to die. So it makes no biological, logical sense for your brain and body to just disintegrate and turn to mush if you don't eat for a few hours, even a few days. If anything, it makes sense that it would improve to make sure you can actually catch your prey. This would be an evolutionary advantage. Surely then repeated fasting should be a really good thing then. Well, there's not really any evidence to actually support that. Now, it doesn't mean it wouldn't be, but I think you probably get very limited benefit from frequent fasts. Again, you know, lions, tigers, etc., they're not fasting for months on end every few months. No, this is a random thing. Yeah, maybe every few months it could be a good idea to fast, maybe reset our metabolic health, etc. But that's mostly just unproven and pretty much just conjecture on my part. So should you do prolonged fasts? And what's the ideal time frame? Well, there's no real evidence to say that people that fast have better health overall. But there's lots of evidence that fasting and fasting mimicking diets, the FMD, can be beneficial for health. I personally think that most people should do prolonged fasts occasionally. And whilst there's little evidence on what the best time or duration for a fast is, I usually recommend about three days. It's sufficient to see the maximum return on investment with minimal risk. After three days, there's definitely diminishing returns and increased risks. But who shouldn't do prolonged fasts? Well, like with anything, generally pregnant or lactating women, breastfeeding women shouldn't do prolonged fasts. Children should not do prolonged fasts. Babies definitely do not fast. Now again, there's no evidence to say it's harmful, but there's also no evidence to say it's helpful in these individuals, and they would be at higher risk of harm. People with certain medical conditions, as I said, should also be wary about prolonged fasting, particularly those with diabetes, especially type 1, definitely type 2 if you're taking SGLT2s or you have glucose issues, those with kidney problems, liver problems, history of gout, because fasting can trigger gout, and history of kidney stones. Anybody wanting to do a fast longer than 24 hours, I believe, should seek some medical guidance even though it's generally safe, it's good to have these discussions with people just to make sure that they are being safe, that there's no issues. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Meet Medic podcast. Subscribe for more episodes. And if you want to support this podcast, 
please see the links in the description. Thank you, for this li- Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meek Medic Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help to spread the word that how, how we can improve mental and physical health through diet and nutrition. If you are imp- interested in improving your own... Okay, let's just re-record that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meek Medic Podcast. If you found this episode useful, please leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help out the channel to grow. If you have found this useful and you want to improve your physical and mental health further, please do check out my website, themeekmedic.com, where you can find all my eBooks are currently 50% off with the code 50OFF. That's code 50OFF50OFF for 50% off all eBooks. Take care. Thank you. See you in the next episode.